If you'd like to open up your Bible to Joshua chapter 3, I'd like to read that entire chapter. And as you're turning there, I'll mention that um, last time we looked at the first of three messages on on the Jordan River crossing, and really what got my uh, got my interest in this whole passage was the two memorials that God instructed his people to build, one in the river um, and then one outside the river. And as you know, in the Old Testament, um, often the patriarchs, for example, would build memorials to God or um, offer a, a drink offering. Um, but I think... This is the only place in the Old Testament where God ordains a memorial to be built. And he ordains two memorials to be built. So as I got into studying this, I was really, I was really interested in what was going on here. And hopefully uh, the Lord will help us um, understand it. So today will be our second message. And we're going to read now uh, uh, Joshua chapter 3. Joshua rose early in the morning. And they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which you must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, you shall stand still in Jordan. Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now, therefore, take you 12 men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. It came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as they that bear the Ark were come unto Jordan, 
and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon an heap very far from the city Adam, that is besides Zaratan. And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. So by way of of review, because it's been a month since we talked about this, our last message was entitled Beholding, and we saw the Israelites perhaps um, as they, they beheld the situation, they were able to take in many things that God was now starting to put together in a very, in a very quick fashion. We mentioned that we cannot overvalue the significance of this event. Uh, this event that takes a couple chapters in God's word. Um, the, the Jordan River crossing, when God's people finally enter into the promised land, and what they're going to do subsequently after that, um, the slow buildup of the realization of the nation of Israel, um, that Hebrew monarchy, which is going to be established, um, David's dynasty, uh, giving way to, to what I think was the golden age of Israel when Solomon's temple was built and God inhabited that temple. But, but for all of that to happen, they had to pass over the River Jordan. The River Jordan crossing was, was very crucial in the history of God's covenant redemption with his people. We also noted, as we talked about the significance of this event, that um, this event was not symbolical of natural death and entrance into heaven, but really what is in view, and this will be developed today and next time, but really what is in view is something that's relative to the Christian life and the Christian experience, even something that we read about in the reading earlier in Romans chapter 6. Um, there is somewhat of, of a reality, both positional and something of a reality relative to our Christian experience that we're going to see open up here. And we're going to see God... God focusing on really the how and the why of, of this whole thing that we call the gospel and why we are here. So we had, uh, had, had a couple of sections last time. I'm going to go very briefly. We thought the Israelites might have looked backward. And just one of those items that we talked about was the promised land. What was this land that God promised his people? What was so special about it? Well, we saw that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. In other words, it was a rich land. It was an abundant land. Secondly, we saw that it was labor-free. No work involved. No work involved. And, and God's people were going to inherit houses and vineyards and olive yards. And, and, and they would just be walking into something that the work had already been done. Thirdly, we saw that it was the inheritance God promised them by virtue of inheritance, that this land would be theirs. And then also we saw that it was the best God could do. 
Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 6 when he said he was going to bring them into this land. He brought them into this land of milk and honey from Egypt. He said, I spied out a land for them that flowed with milk and honey and it was the glory of all lands. It was the best God could do. And as we talked about the promised land, we saw it wasn't just a geographical place with all of these blessings. It was also also a state of blessedness, a state of assurance, a state where the people knew God's promises would just be, keep coming to them, uh, God's faithfulness. So, so it was a geographical place, but it was also this, this state of blessedness that they were going to inherit, much like the Christian's life, which is though we have all sorts of experiences in this life, we would say some are good, some are bad, some are mountaintops, some are valleys, but this state of blessedness, knowing assurance, knowing that we belong to the Lord, knowing God is doing something in our midst. Secondly, last time we we saw that not only did they see the land, but there was this obstacle of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River was overflowing at the time of harvest. We talked about the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, which was coming later. But the Jordan River crossing was a formidable obstacle because it overflowed its banks. So not only was the Jordan River between 20 or 30 yards wide, but it was an eighth mile wider on each side, overflowing. And we mentioned that the Jordan River um, came from Mount Hermon far away, but, but the thing that we noted was there was this radical descent. So the water was really rushing downhill to, to finally get to, to the Dead Sea. Um, and so it was going to be a, a significant thing for them to cross. Uh, Jordan means descent or descending. And then we looked at, they looked backward, they looked forward, then they looked Godward. They looked to God's people under the leadership of Joshua because it was only God who could direct them to do the how so that they could get across. Um, The instructions were to go after the Ark of the Covenant. Follow the Lord. Whatever God is going to do, you just have to do what he... Just follow after him and all will be well. And we closed that message with one application, which sounds very simple, but I think it's the reality of it in our life is something we have to, have to grasp every day. But we quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 23, where Moses said, he brought us out that he might bring us in. He brought us out of Egypt, not to stay in the wilderness, not to to walk in circles in the desert. He brought us out for the specific purpose of bringing us in, bringing us into the promised land. Um, Relative to our Christian experience, the application of what this applies for us today, um, we saw that crossing the River Jordan has, has a lot to do with death of self. And we read about that in Romans chapter, chapter 6. Death of, of self. That daily practical application, that subjective application of applying the cross 
to our life every day. The Christian life, the Christian experience, as, as we grow, uh, it's, it's elevated, it progresses in this dramatic way where we realize we're dead to the old man, we're alive to Christ. And the reality of, of new life in Christ means something to us every day. Israel was never really out of Egypt until they crossed over the Jordan River. They always had a, had a hankering to go back. It wasn't until they passed over the Jordan River that you never again hear them saying, oh, we wish we could go back to Egypt. They had leeks and onions. And, of course, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I think, ties, starts tying everything together. Where Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God brought us out of the old life that he might bring us into the new life. Two quotes. If the Red Sea deliverance points to the substitutionary death and the positional redemptive identification of the believer in Christ. So the Jordan River reminds us of our identification with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in our daily lives. Not just positionally, but how we live every day. The difference between the Red Sea and the Jordan as types is as vast as difference as being positionally identified with Christ in gospel and salvation and in a practical sense, living in the promised land. Our Lord prayed in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. And I think it takes the believer a while to get to that point where they can say that and pray that every day, not my will, but thy will be done. We have this Adamic nature that we're constantly fighting and trying to diminish and 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 saying with John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. And that's the dynamic that is happening here. And that's the dynamic that we're learning is happening with God's people here. So with all of that introduction, I apologize for review. I personally hate reviews. I want to go on to new stuff myself. Um, so today we have, have more background, but you're going to see how all of this is fitting together and there's going to be a confluence of all of this coming together to really highlight what God wants us to see here. So I have five headings. The sovereign God declaring, the living God abiding, I will repeat these, the omnipotent God performing, the exalted God manifesting, and the faithful God finishing. So what I want to do now is look at this from the standpoint of taking one of the attributes of God that is mentioned here, and apply an adverb. I'm not applying the adverb. God applied the adverb to it to see what God is doing in a very multifaceted way. First of all, the sovereign God declaring. The sovereign God declaring here at the Jordan River crossing. You know, when you talk to people and they may not say something directly, but maybe by their accent maybe by the way they're dressed, maybe they allude to something in a conversation, you can kind of know what that person is thinking. They don't have to say something directly or 
I'll use particular words. But here, in a direct statement, by virtue of what God says, we understand that the sovereign God is declaring that he's in control of this whole thing. And we notice this in verse 11 and in verse 13. Verse 11, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Verse 13, the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. By virtue of simply what he says, the God of the Bible is sovereign. Though unknown in today's culture, misunderstood perhaps in today's church culture, God is sovereign. And we're going to see this in this river crossing in several dramatic ways. But think about the sovereignty of God. How clearly, very often in the Bible, it notes that. First Chronicles 29 and verse 11 Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and all that is in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. His kingship is affirmed. His supremacy is is affirmed. His Godhead is affirmed. For God to be God, he must be absolutely sovereign. Daniel said all of the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will. And then again, he talks about heaven and earth in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? One quote from A.W. Pink. The sovereignty of God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, and infinite. It's infinite. When we say God, when we say that God is sovereign, we affirm his right to govern the universe, which he has made for his own glory, just as he pleases. The potter has right over the clay. This is what Paul said when Paul said, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 11, verse 13, he is Lord of all the earth. And what that means in the context of the Jordan River is, first of all, he has a plan for his people. And he will execute it according to his timing and according to how he wants it to unfold. He commands his people several things to do in this context. And they, with the obedience of faith, uh, again, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans, the obedience of faith, not to question, but to follow, have gospel obedience He will subsequently command them to do many things. Drive out the people of the promised land. Destroy the idols. Do many, many other things. As sovereign God, he has the right 
to command. His plan includes that the people be sanctified, that is separated for this event, for this work. His plan includes these directions where they have to do something that's, that's contrary to human reasoning and scary and inconvenient and not easy. His plan will be to take possession of the land by degrees, and he has a reason for that. But how often do God's people languish under what seems like what we think is an inordinate amount of time for something to occur? But God is sovereign, has a plan for his people, and he will execute it. His sovereignty here is seen in the fact that he can drive the Jordan River back 15 or 20 miles all the way to Adam. We'll look at this miracle shortly under a different heading. But note that God as creator has the sovereign prerogative to speak a word and his creation can change. He did this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 where he spoke a word about letting the waters under heaven be divide, gathered together and the dry land appear. God can call the waters seas. He can call the waters oceans. He can make rivers. He speaks a word. And it happens. We should not be surprised. Of course, there are many skeptics who would doubt this miracle. But recall that the river Jordan had a over a 2,500-foot descent. And he pushes that water back. And it was overflowing. He pushes that water back uphill for 15 or 20 miles until God's people get over. And then he releases that water, comes back again, and it overflows again. God is sovereign. In this context of the Jordan River crossing, it means God is preeminent. We are the dust of the earth. And just as the Ark of the Covenant had to be lifted up above the people, exalted, and just as God directed the people to stay away 2,000 cubits, some people say that's a Sabbath day's journey. I'm not sure if that's true. But there had to be the separation between the sovereign God and his people. Because even though he is your father by virtue of adoption, even though his, he is your savior by virtue of, of redemption, he is still God. And we are still his creation. The psalmist, the psalmist who knew God was reproved when Jehovah God said to him, Thou thoughtest I was altogether one such as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set this in order before thine eyes. God had to remind him that he wasn't just a human with superpowers. He was altogether different. Again, in the context of the Jordan River crossing, what is the reality of God being sovereign? The reality is that he is the God of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Hivite and the Perizzite the Amorite, the Gergesite, and the Jebusites. It's God's prerogative to drive them out. It's God's prerogative to give their land to the Israelites. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof and the people that dwell therein. The land did not belong to those other people groups. It belongs to God and God can give it to whomsoever he desires. And if that sounds harsh, we must remember those nations were very exceedingly wicked. 
They were noted in the scripture for their immorality, for their perverseness, for their wickedness. And God would use the Israelites to bring divine judgment upon them. And by the way, if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, you know that when God pushed them out, very often God offered terms of surrender, terms of peace, conditional surrender if they would. But of course, man with a wicked heart more often than not chose not to bend to God's demands. In this account, we see once again the sovereignty of God orchestrating events, accomplishing his perfect will, using the Israelites, using the other nations, using creation, all of these things under the control of God. I don't perhaps have to ask this group if God is your sovereign. You know, what's interesting to me is even earlier in this book of Joshua, Rahab recognized the sovereignty of God. Rahab said, as soon as we heard these things about the Lord, what he had done, what he's going to do, our hearts melted. There was no courage in us. Why? For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and he is in God in earth beneath. It's an amazing statement by Rahab the harlot. Even she recognized the sovereignty of God. The sovereign God declaring. Secondly, the living God abiding. Verse 5, the Lord will do wonders among you. Verse 10, and Joshua said, Hereby you shall know the living God is among you. God is in your midst. God will work in your midst. This is a monumental truth. No longer a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night. Now God is going to come into the camp and he's going to work in your midst. He's going to be abiding there two key thoughts about this living God abiding and they focus around the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant is central to this miracle the Ark of the Covenant goes before the people the Ark of the Covenant must go into this this river it steps, it, the priests step into the water before the water is dried up. The Ark of the Covenant stays there until everybody gets safely through. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant signifies the very real presence of God and it also signifies the symbolic presence of God. And the Ark of the Covenant is, is a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Ark of the Covenant was was this small chest made of wood, but it was overlaid inside and outside with pure gold. It had the mercy seat or that, that crown that lid on top of it with the angels, the two cherubim on either side of that lid with wings touching, covering, shadowing, 
that mercy seat and that Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark of the Covenant, again, signifies both the real and that the symbolic presence of God in the midst of his people. When the Ark of the Covenant was fetched, um, when David brought it up, David noted that God dwells between the cherubim in the Ark of the Covenant. It was the meeting place between God and Moses. God told Moses, I will meet you. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat and between the two cherubims which are upon the Ark of the Testimony. That special place where that mercy seat where the blood had to be sprinkled once a year to make that atonement for God's people. Living God abiding in the midst of his people. Normally the the Ark of the Covenant was not seen by people. When it traveled, it was covered. I, I don't know that we know for sure in this event if it was covered. It probably was, but it was exalted above so everybody could see the outline. Everybody could have a sense that the Ark was very pivotal and leading in the midst of this miracle. The mercy seat, the very, the very, very, I don't know the word I'm, I'm looking for, but, but in Romans 3, God says, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. But that word propitiation is the word mercy seat. God has set forth his son to be a mercy seat, the place where we can meet God, the place where the blood is sprinkled, the place where um, there's a declaration of his righteousness for the remission of sins that is passed through the forbearance of God. It It was the focal point. But in addition to the mercy seat, those three elements inside that chest, inside that mercy seat, point to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. You recall there was the table of the covenant, there was the pot of manna, and there was Aaron's rod that budded. And each of those point to one of the three primary offices of the Lord Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Those offices that he divinely executes on behalf of his own. As the prophet, Deuteronomy 18 that prophet that should come into all the world. The prophet is one who dispenses the living bread, the bread of life, the word of God, which the Bible always many, many times talks about as bread. This pot of manna was reminding us of the Lord Jesus Christ as that prophet that should come into all the world. Aaron's rod that budded reminds us or represents the office of Christ as priesthood. That, that's a very interesting artifact in God's museum, this, this rod that budded. You recall that in the book of Numbers, there was this major disagreement as to who the priesthood belonged to. And, and the tribes and some special people were fighting over. They wanted the priesthood. No, this tribe wanted the priesthood. And there was this power grab and, and jockeying for position. And God had to intervene 
through Moses, and he said, each tribe get a dead stick, get a rod of wood, and lay it up before the Lord, before the, test, the ark of the testimony. One staff, one rod, one branch for each tribe. And the Lord said he would show who the priesthood belonged to. And so those 12 branches or rods or sticks were laid up before the Lord overnight. And in the morning, the scripture says, Moses went into that tabernacle of witness. And it says, behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and it yielded almonds, had fruit on it. So again, the question, who does the priesthood belong to? Answer, it belongs to the one who was dead, but after being dead is then shown to be living. Back from the dead that has buds and blossoms and fruit is very much alive. Jesus Christ said, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. His priesthood. And then the table of commandments. Christ is king. As king, he is the lawgiver. Not only as the lawgiver, he alone kept the law. So this Ark of the Covenant in the midst of God's people is very clearly pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ who in the midst of his people, as prophet, priest, and king, as the personification of the mercy seat, as the actual and real presence of God and the symbolic representation of God in the midst of his people, the Ark of the Covenant is going to do the work. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to accomplish something for his people. And as a sidebar thought, one of the primary missions of the Ark of the Covenant had a single goal. The single goal of the Ark of the Covenant was to search out a resting place for God's people. It fought battles. It was a place of worship. It did many, many things. Numbers 10, verse 33 When they departed from the mountain of the Lord three days' journey, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them to search out a resting place for them. Remember when Solomon's temple was built and God came down, they had brought the Ark of the Covenant into that temple. Remember what they did? They withdrew the carrying rods. They withdrew those rods whereby they would bear up the Ark of the Covenant on the shoulders of the priests signifying this is the resting place. And God has been searching out a resting place for his people. And he's found one. He says, now I'm going to prepare that place for you, that where I am, there you might be with me. He's preparing that place for us. And he's preparing us for that place. The living God Abiding. God said very plainly, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Thirdly, the omnipotent God performing. 
omnipotent simply meaning all-powerful. The Jordan River crossing was going to be accomplished in a way that God would demonstrate his power. His people would know God was in the midst and he would do it in a dramatic fashion and sufficiently memorialize it so as so that it could be remembered. The event itself, of course, is a miracle. Jordan had overflowed its banks. It was now a quarter mile wide plus 20 or 30 yards. The river descended from 2,400 feet. The river banks were filled with shrubs and trees and bluffs and rocks. Those people who were crossing, they had their wives, their little ones, they had possessions, they had tents, they had livestock. And God, by virtue of his presence in the midst of the Jordan, in the midst of his people, God who promised that they would come into the promised land, as soon as the priests who were bearing the ark stepped on the brim of that water, the water was stopped up all the way back to Adam. It's no coincidence that it goes back to Adam, that there's a city named Adam. Unlike the Red Sea crossing, where the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, here the King James uses the word a heap used for this wall of water, but but it's been removed again all the way back to Adam, 15, 18 or so miles away, uphill. And they walk over on a dry riverbed. The people saw the ark, but they did not see the water. God miraculously performing this miracle, giving his people assurance that he was in their midst. It had to be God, right? I mean, could you have any other thought? If someone can do something to creation that dramatic. But yet, remember those disciples with Jesus in the boat? where they were afraid and and Jesus, they had to wake Jesus up and he commanded the wind and the waves and they said, what kind of, what manner of man, they didn't think it was God, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? God was in their midst. This, This Jordan River was divided other times, was it not, both with Elijah and Elisha. The omnipotent God performing. He has all power. He has supreme power. None can stay his hand. God authored the laws of gravity and physics and science, and God can alter those or change those. I would say gravity always works, right? I mean, if I drop something, if I let go of something, it's going to drop. And and waters that are coming down from 2,400 feet are going to keep coming down. But God can push, it's hard enough to push something solid uphill, but to push water uphill, that's our omnipotent God. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God says. Think about this water. So it came down from Mount Hermon and it makes this, I think it's 200-mile trek down to the, to the Dead Sea. But now God is pushing it back. 
Think about the fact that every droplet of water, its location, its size, what snowflake it came from, what route it took as it came down from Mount Hermon, and then it's pushed back, every droplet of water is under the omnipotent hand of God. That's the God I serve. That's the God I know. This power is no less seen in the miracle of grace. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. To take a heart of stone out of a living person and give them a heart of flesh that loves the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and truth is an amazing thing. To think God would take pity on any one of us, that God would demonstrate love towards us, that God would, would, we who have forsaken God, who are at enmity with God, that God would bring us back to himself. the omnipotent God performing in the midst of his people. Fourthly, the exalted God manifesting. God, of course, is exalted in all of these. this thing, in, in the sovereign God declaring, in the living God abiding, in the omnipotent God performing. But the exalted God manifesting, our exalted head, I think one of the things he's manifesting is his sufficiency and our insufficiency. Abundant power and sufficiency on God's part, man's inability, man's weakness, so that by the time everybody got across that river, all glory went to God himself. Israel could not have gotten over completely unless God undertook, God intervened. Who came to help Israel cross Jordan? It wasn't the weak God of today. It wasn't the God of, of imaginations that people forge in their mind making a comfortable God so they could be comfortable with God. It wasn't the God who's dependent upon man's actions for man to act first the one who comes to help, as the psalmist said, is the Lord who made heaven and earth. When I'm thinking about the sufficiency of God and the insufficiency of man, I automatically think about that verse in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Insufficiency of man earthen vessels. Sufficiency of God, the excellency of the power of God. An exalted God. A God who manifests his sufficiency in even our extremity. God's sufficiency. So he gets all the glory for it. This crossing, it was unimagined by the Israelites. It was unplanned. It was impossible. Vain is the help of man, these Israelites would say. God undertakes for them, and God is exalted above all. 
we can never get away from that verse where Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah, Lord, but now I've grown into Christian faith. I've learned these few things. I can do this, that, or the other thing. Without me, you can do nothing. So that he gets all the glory and all the credit. Yeah, but Lord, I have done this and this in the past. Haven't I? No, you did not do that. I did it through you, if it's anything at all. He will not share his glory with anybody. He did not even share his glory with the Apostle Paul. Lastly, the faithful God finishing. No surprise here. If God starts something, God will complete it. Verse 17, the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and, note, all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over. God would ensure that everybody could get across. In the language of the New Testament, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or, as our Lord said, this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. None were left behind. The last person was just as important to get across as the first person. If we were there and if we were going through the river, would we have been alarmed that maybe the water is going to come crashing down now while I'm in the midst of it? Or, or he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the... He is faithful. God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way this whole thing unfolds, and we see these attributes of God, what he is doing, and man almost seems like just a bystander trying to follow what God says. We, we just see this, this tremendous exaltation of God, this faithfulness of God, accomplishing his perfect plan. And I think the Israelites, as I think we are, we kind of on a day-by-day basis, it's only like sufficient unto the day do we see what God is doing. We don't have the foresight, obviously, of God, but we don't have the foresight even of, of a month or a year or two or five with God working in our midst. Well, let me just close with, with just this brief application that, that these five attributes of God and, and these adverbs that we've attached to them, it's not, it's not like textbook theory. It's, it's the reality for us, if we belong to him, the sovereign God declaring he is Lord of all the earth. There is nothing in heaven or upon the earth that is outside of his command and control. You were redeemed by the same God who undertook during this account. The living God abiding. God abides in our midst. The psalmist said, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. We're taught that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And what makes that really nice is it's the faith that he gives us. If it was our faith that had to contain him in our heart, that would be difficult and we we would fail. 
the omnipotent God performing. God will do all the works that he wants to do relative to us. There's been no diminishing of God's power. God's not like a clock that slowly runs down after it's been wound up. God's power is infinite. So infinity, infinity take away infinity is still infinity. He is all-powerful. The fact that he has worked the miracle of grace in your life should tell you that, that God is, is all-powerful and, and some of that omnipotence is put to your account. So he can do something in your life. The exalted God manifesting. This is the believer's desires that God would get all the glory, all the praise, all the exit, nothing of me, myself, or I in the whole equation. The faithful God finishing. God will finish with us and take us to heaven. We actually will bear the image of Christ when we enter into heaven. It's not textbook theory, it's reality. Well, next month we will look at these two pillars. And I think by now there are enough spiritual clues in our last two messages and a clue given in Romans, uh, the Romans passage that was read earlier. This, this Jordan River, not simply physical death, but talking about that principle of death to self, the Ark of the Covenant, that, that emblem of Christ going in first to the Jordan River, that river being backed up all the way to Adam, the people passing through after the Ark of the Covenant, passing through on dry ground, and God's instructions. Now, take stones that were in the river, and build a memorial in the promised land. And there's going to be a memorial built there in the river itself. Well, may God be pleased to, to continue to enlighten his word to our heart. That we might be able to return praise and worship to him. He has done tremendously mighty things for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, our Father, as we consider even just briefly some of the works that you have done amongst your people. We are truly a blessed people to understand, especially thinking about the miracle of grace that you have undertaken for us and you have saved us. And Father, oh, might we be a people that sees more clearly on a daily basis your Godhead, your attributes, and your working. And Father, might we be a people that is thankful, a people that worships, a people that, from a very humble standpoint, endeavors to, to put into practice that faithful obedience that we might please you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.